seems only fitting that the week I'm preaching on, you shall not steal, my bike gets stolen. Well, that's the providence of God for you. And uh, hopefully if the thief pokes his head in here today, he'll be convicted by God's word and I'll get my bike back. Well, this evening as we continue our study on God's moral law, we come to the eighth word. And if you're just tuning into this series for the first time, I've been referring to the Ten Commandments as the Ten Words, and that's simply because in our Bibles, the original Hebrew speaks of them as the Ten Words or the Ten Sayings. And I find this helpful because the Ten Words that God speaks to Moses at Sinai, uh, they, they entail more than just commands. They include promises, warnings, history, and also commands. Tonight we'll give our attention to God's prohibition of theft. And the eighth word is a negative command. But as we've seen with the whole moral law, behind every negative is a positive summons. Jesus reveals this to us when he reminds us that the law of God is really about the human heart. It's not enough to simply avoid murder or to avoid adultery. No, Jesus reminds us that we need to address the root of these sins, uh, which are anger and lust. God's moral law is not just about external behavior, but it's about internal renewal. And internal renewal can only happen with a heart transplant. Only born-again believers can experience the power of God that enables us by his spirit to kill sin and to put on Christ. Well, before we dive into the eighth word, I want to begin by answering a question about God's moral law. Should we really preach from the law? Won't we just come away thinking that by doing more, We're saved by being better. Well, I touched on this briefly in our introduction to this series, but the simple answer is this. We keep God's law not because it earns our salvation, but because in our union with Christ, our entire life becomes a journey of looking more like Christ. This is the Spirit's work of sanctification in us. And Jesus is a picture of the 10 words. He fulfilled the entire law of God perfectly. And so while we will never look like Jesus fully until heaven, we are still called to grow in looking more like him now. Sinclair Ferguson reminds us of the two thieves of the gospel. Legalism and antinomianism. And these two ditches, as we're thinking through God's moral law and why it's worthwhile to preach from God's moral law, these two ditches are important to avoid. Legalism says, I'm saved because of what I do, because of how I keep God's law. Antinomianism says, Well, I'm saved because Christ kept the law for me, and so uh, there's no need for me to, to try to keep the law on my own. 
And both attitudes, both legalism and antinomianism, they rob God of his glory and of his gospel. And Ferguson reminds us that in order to avoid these two ditches, we really need the whole Christ. We need to present the whole person and work of Jesus Christ. And, and, and when we present the whole Christ, we see the balance, the balance of law and gospel. Christ graciously forgives us our sins. That's the gospel. And then he summons us to walk in newness of life. That's the law. Christ welcomes us with open arms regardless of our past, right? That's the gospel. And then he gives us his spirit that we might grow in conformity to his image, the law. And so for us, learning about God's moral law is an opportunity for us. It's an opportunity to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, to use the language of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter two. This is a worthwhile study for us, not because you're able to save yourself by keeping the law, but because as someone who is already saved, you'll be better equipped to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, to live out the Christian life as God has called you to do. This evening we will look at the eighth word in two ways. Firstly, how do we violate this command? And secondly, in what ways are we called to uphold this command? And the heart of the eighth word is this. We are called to labor honestly for our daily bread and to steward the gifts that God entrusts to us. We are called to labor honestly for our daily bread and to steward the gifts that God entrusts to us. So firstly, in what ways do we violate this command? Martin Luther says that we violate this command when we take advantage of our neighbor in any sort of dealing with him that results in a loss. And remember, Jesus summarizes the whole of the law in Matthew 22 as this, love God and love neighbor. And so, the second table of the law is all about loving our neighbor. In some ways, uh, the commandments seven through 10, they, they are all an expansion of the sixth command because the sixth command teaches us that human beings are sacred because we're created in the image of God. And so commandments seven through 10 are all describing the ways in which we transgress the image of God. Now, as we think through how we violate this command, we need to firstly consider a biblical view of possessions. We read in Exodus chapter 20, you shall not steal. And of course, the act of stealing, it presupposes the idea of private property. Now, in the Bible, private property does exist We see this very clearly in Exodus chapter 22 when God gives laws for restitution, right? If you break something that belongs to your neighbor, you need to replace it fully. But 
The biblical view of private property differs from that of the world. The world considers ownership and property to be absolute, and we do not. Even in the Old Testament, we see that property rights were never absolute. In Leviticus 25, for example, we see that the land is returned every 50 years to its original owners. We also read in Leviticus 23, uh, verse 22, that farmers were instructed during the harvest to leave the corners of their fields unharvested. That way the poor could harvest them and have something to eat. God even tells Israel in Leviticus chapter 19 that if they so much as even drop grain or grapes during the harvesting process, they're to leave them on the ground for the poor and the sojourner. You see, God entrusts us with things, but he wants us to utilize the gifts that he gives to us for, the, for his glory and for the advancement of his kingdom. And so we might say that we, we believe in private stewardship uh, rather than private property. God entrusts us with gifts with blessings and possessions, and he expects us to steward them for his glory. And we hold things in this life loosely because we recognize that all that we have, all that we have, our homes, our vehicles, our paychecks, they are all gifts entrusted to us by God. This is what we read in Psalm 24, Verse one, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and, and those who dwell therein, it's all encompassing. Everything around us, everything around us, including every person on the face of this planet, actually belongs to, to God. We are simply stewards of both his good gifts and of the bodies that he has given to us. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, verse 7, that we bring nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. And so private stewardship means that we keep a loose grip on the things that we own because we're not taking them with us when God calls us home. So stealing is a violation because we are taking things that God has entrusted to others to steward. In one sense, then, we we see that stealing is usurping God's authority because we actually deny his sovereignty when we take that which he has chosen not to give to us. God sovereignly chooses to distribute gifts, to distribute blessings and material possessions to image bearers as he sees fit according to his perfect will. And to our eyes, to our human minds at times, his distribution may seem unequal, but in the mind of God, his distribution is perfect. And remember, as Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, verse 48, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much 
They will demand more. In our carnal minds, we often grow jealous of those who have. We think life is easier for those whom God has furnished furnished with much. But as Jesus reminds us, when God sovereignly entrusts someone with much, he expects even more. Theft is also bypassing God's creational order. God has instituted a means for us to earn our daily bread. And human industry is a creational ordinance. We see this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, when God sets Adam over the garden. Uh, we, we read that Adam was called to work it and to keep it. And yes, Adam and Eve, they fell into sin, and our labors are now tainted by the curse. We experience futility and disorder in the workplace and in our daily callings. But as the Apostle Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 15, our labor in the Lord is not in vain. When we clock in at our nine to five, we labor in the Lord. Our work is an opportunity to testify to the glory of God in our craft. So when we steal, we bypass God's creational design. Stealing also violates God's loss. It's in reality, everything in this life, including our possessions and the possessions of others, already belong to God. We find this principle in Malachi chapter three when the prophet rebukes the children of Jacob for failing to tithe and to give their offerings to God. And I'll touch a little bit on the subject of tithing towards the end, but the prophet describes even withholding a portion of our wealth from God as robbing God. Imagine that. I mean, that changes the landscape for us when we think in those terms, robbing God. We violate the eighth commandment when uh, we withhold our tithes from God or whether we in fact steal from another. Theft is not just a, a horizontal offense, it is a vertical one. Stealing is a divine offense because when we steal, we rob from the very one who is the Lord and giver of everything and everyone. So what are some practical ways that we violate this eighth command? Well, if you want an exhaustive account, I recommend you read the Westminster Larger Catechism on this commandment because it really teases out every implication, but I'll, I'm just gonna go through a few here. Man-stealing is a violation of the eighth word. And some Hebrew scholars note that the original word for steal here in Exodus 20, verse 15, that this word is actually focusing on man-stealing, this exact sin. So chattel slavery, human trafficking, kidnapping. These are all egregious sins in the sight of God. These sins rob God by violating sacred image bearers. 
Defrauding someone or deceiving them is, in a transaction is also a form of theft. And of course, property theft is prohibited, but we must remember that this includes intellectual property, plagiarism. And perhaps the most incriminating form of theft for all of us is time. We rob our employer when we're distracted on the job and we rob God of the time he gives to us when we use it foolishly. Time is a gift to be stewarded from God. We would do well to heed the words of scripture in Ephesians chapter five. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Well, secondly, what does it mean for us to uphold the eighth word? And I want to actually read you the Westminster Shorter Catechism answer here because I think it's tremendously helpful. This is how our catechism puts it, question and answer 74. The Eighth Commandment requires the lawful procuring and furthering the wealth and outward estate of ourselves and others. The Eighth Commandment requires the lawful procuring and furthering the wealth and outward estate of ourselves and others. So what we actually confess as a church here is is that pursuing wealth with an eye towards the kingdom of God is actually a good thing. We do not confess that that a monastic way of life is of a higher spiritual order. If we fundamentally understand that all that we have comes from God, we should seek to work hard and to acquire resources so that we can advance the kingdom of Christ here on earth. And remember that wealth itself is not an evil. The Bible rather tells us that it is the love of money. It is the love of money that is a root of all kinds of evil. Jesus reminds us that we cannot serve God and money and that yes, it is in fact harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle and yet it's not impossible. And with God, all things are possible. And so the secret to killing the idol of mammon while furthering our wealth for the advancement of Christ's kingdom, to use the language of our catechism, uh, the secret is to remember that principle I stated earlier. We do not have absolute private property. We simply have private stewardship All that we have, even the breath in our lungs, comes from God and we will give an account. We will give an account to him on the last day of how we have used the gifts that he has given to us. Jesus tells us this in Matthew chapter 25 in the parable of the talents. God sovereignly gives some more to others in this parable and yet on the day of Christ's return uh, the day of Christ's return we all answer 
for how we steward what we've been given regardless of how much we've been given. And Jesus says there are only two outcomes. There are only two outcomes. If you are faithful in stewarding the things that he has entrusted to you, including your very soul, including entrusting your soul to him, you will enter into the joy of your master. But if you squander, if you squander what God has given you, if you reject him, if you love mammon more than God, if you set your mind on carnal things rather than the things that are above, Jesus says you will be cast out into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so stewardship, how we, how we utilize the things that God has given us is a matter of life and death. God does not guarantee prosperity in this life, but God simply demands that we faithfully steward all that we have with an eye toward the kingdom and the welfare of others. And that's an important point, not just with an eye toward the kingdom, but with an eye towards others. This is how the Apostle Paul puts it when he encourages a repentant thief in Ephesians chapter four. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he might have something to share with anyone in need. So laboring honestly for our daily bread, it provides us with means to bless others, to show hospitality to one another, to care for those who are suffering. Well, the eighth word also calls us to give our tithes and our offerings to God. And biblically speaking, tithes and offerings are simply returning to God a portion of what he has already given to us. And when we tithe, we are in fact declaring that God is the source, that God is the source of all that we have. In the Old Testament, Israel was required to give around 10% as an offering to God. And uh, some scholars argue that it could actually be up, up to around 23%, but The point is this, uh, that in the Old Testament we see that giving tithes to God was an element of worship. And in the New Testament, uh, the exact amount of tithing is not addressed specifically, but it is assumed all throughout the New Testament, it is assumed to be an element of worship. Jesus assumes it in Matthew chapter five when he talks about uh, being reconciled with your brother. He says, go and reconcile with your brother before bringing your offering to the altar in the context of worship. Paul assumes it uh, in 1 Corinthians 16. He assumes that the church is regularly taking a collection. And yet, as I said, uh, the exact amount is not addressed in the New Testament And Paul does say in 1 Corinthians 16, verse two, that uh, your giving should be proportionate to how God is prospering you. So while the New Testament doesn't explicitly address the amount we are to give, 
Uh, The Old Testament principle of 10% is a great starting point for us. But here's the thing. The thing is that, that we will never be able to outgive our God. We'll never be able to outgive him. And God promises a spiritual reward as we give to the Lord with cheerful hearts. This is what we read in 2 Corinthians 9. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. At the end of the day, our giving needs to be a matter of our hearts. We must give joyfully and worshipfully, not as a matter of uh, rote, mechanical, perfunctory, going through the motions kind of thing. And this is why Jesus commends uh, the widow at the end of Mark chapter 12 because he looks upon her heart. He sees her heart is in the right place. She gives just one penny, just one penny. But to her, that penny was everything. It was her livelihood. It was her life. And so our tithing, our giving to God is not about a dollar amount, uh, but rather it is a matter of our love for God. And even if we don't have regular income, even if we don't have regular income, we are still able to bring our offering to God. Giving of your time is, is a wonderful way to do that. In fact, time is, is more precious than money. It's your greatest resource. And here's something amazing for us to consider. This should really be exciting for you. As a believer, your daily vocation suddenly takes a new dimension when we consider how our resources actually support the furtherance of the kingdom, the the going out of the gospel. In 3 John chapter 8, we find this reality stated in a profound way. There's something exciting about our daily calling. We read this. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So the Apostle John is saying we become fellow workers. We become fellow workers. In other words, we we actually participate in the advancement of Christ's kingdom when we support the work of the church, the work of the truth. You are a fellow worker for the truth when you support the ministry of our church through our tithes and offerings. You are a fellow worker for the truth when you support local and global partners. We become fellow workers of the truth when we use the means that God has given us, the means that God has given us to partner in gospel advancement. As we come to a close this evening, my prayer is that we would look to Christ as an example of what it means to give, what it means to steward the things that God 
has entrusted to us. Christ fulfilled the eighth word by seeking first the kingdom of God and by giving his very life for our welfare. As the scriptures teach, though he was rich, he became poor. And why did he do that? So that we, by his poverty, by his poverty, we might become rich. Jesus was impoverished and he was robbed so that we might inherit the greatest treasure that we could ever fathom. May the Holy Spirit help us to grow in the likeness of Christ that as living sacrifices we would offer our very selves in service to Christ's kingdom. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that by the power of your spirit you would enable us to be fellow workers of your truth. Give us cheerful hearts, O Lord, as we seek to do this, as we seek to be workers in the truth. And you are the truth, and it is your truth that sets people free. So we ask that you would give us contentment, that you would give us godliness, that we would honor you with all that we have. We pray these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.